This week, a special episode all about the future. Why people don't always help their future selves. Yes, we know about the future and we make plans about the future, but they're generally inadequate. How should we conceptualize who future generations actually are? We don't know much about people a few thousand years before now. How can we even uh, pretend to speak about people in one million years? Plus, should we alter the biology of future generations? This is The Nature Podcast for February the 25th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Shamli Bundell. The human brain isn't really wired to think about the future. We put things off till tomorrow. We cross that bridge when we come to it. I wanted to investigate the cognitive biases that affect how we think about our own future lives. But first, let's explore the not-too-distant future with Kirsten and her son Tobias. Listen, I want to explain something, right? Yeah. Oh. I'm going to take one biscuit and leave it here with you. And if you want to, you can eat the biscuit. Okay. But, but, if you leave the biscuit and don't eat it while I get ready, then when I come back, then I'll give you another one and then you'll have two biscuits. Okay! As humans, we live for the moment. Let's start, okay. So you can decide. I'm going to go away and wash my face and get ready, okay? It's sometimes hard to focus beyond the here and now especially when there's a delicious biscuit in front of you. Mummy! Yeah? Did you like to give me another biscuit? Did you decide to eat your biscuit, did you? Yes. Oh, well, we were only going to have another one if you waited. But that's okay. No, you didn't. You ate it. But that's fine. You were allowed to choose and you chose to eat it first. Tobias is nearly three, and much as he wanted a second biscuit, he couldn't help eating the first one right then. You might have seen videos of this kind of experiment online. Search for marshmallow tests, they're adorable. Basically, as far as young children are concerned, the promise of future reward doesn't seem quite enough to make it worth the sacrifice right this moment. But hey, they're just kids. Us adults are way better at making logical choices and taking future consequences into account, aren't we? Well, the future is not very salient. So children are terribly present biased. And as we grow up, we get better at it. But the same idea still holds. That's Richard Thaler, Professor of Behavioural Science and Economics at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. You know, would you rather have $100 today or $110 in a week? And many people will say they'll take the 100 today. Uh, but if you ask them whether they'd rather have $100 in a year or 110 in a year and a week, uh, they'll all be happy to wait the extra week. It's illogical, but it's quite subtle. I don't suppose it would be that easy to demonstrate with a rational, intelligent person. I decided to go find one, just to check. Enter my friend Phil, a chemistry PhD student. OK, Phil, um, hypothetical game. If I were to offer you some money in a year's time... I'll give you either 100 quid okay, or you can toss a coin and if you win, you'll get 200 quid, but if you lose, you get nothing. What would you choose? Ooh. I mean, it's money that I don't have, so I feel like if I lost the coin toss, then I wouldn't be losing anything, so I'd probably take the coin toss. Take the coin toss? Yeah. What if it was right now? 
Ooh. That's a lot more real now. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe I'd just take the hundred quid. <laughs> it's not very logical, is it? No, not really. <laughs> that example is from a real study. And as well as being about our impatience in the present, Richard Thaler says it's also about how we perceive our future. We think we'll have more willpower. We think we'll abide by all our New Year's resolutions. And we don't. But does it matter for the really important things? Surely there we're the picture of rationality and sacrifice for future happiness. Let's use my friend Phil as an example again. What do you do in your daily life that isn't just like for the satisfaction in the moment? I mean, doing my PhD. That's quite a sacrifice because yeah. I sacrifice my happiness and my soul so that I can get a PhD, which God knows whether it maybe will or might not benefit me in the future. A wise and logical choice for Phil there. He hopes that when he becomes Dr Phil, he might have a better chance of getting a job. But that's still only looking a few years into the future. When it comes to longer-term planning, we're often not quite as motivated. The further away something seems, the less we pay attention to it. Take retirement. I haven't put a lot of thought into my pension, or how to get the best deal for future me, and I'm not alone. In the US, maybe 40% of workers don't have a retirement plan at the place they work. That's Richard Thaler again. And being an economist as well as a behavioural scientist, he thought he had a solution to the problem of people not saving enough. He called it Save More Tomorrow. The idea is you present people the option to increase their saving rate, say once a year, every time they get a raise, and to make that keep happening until they say stop. So if you start out saving 3% of your income, and you say, okay, how about 4% next year? Fine. And, you know, then in six more years, you'll be saving 10%, and you'll be on your way to a reasonable retirement. Richard's idea was to help people overcome their cognitive biases using those very same cognitive biases. So the three biases that we're worried about is that people don't care very much about the future, that they're loss averse, so they don't want they think they can't afford to have their income go down right now, and uh, inertia that they don't get around to saving things. So those are also the ingredients we built into the plan to make sure that it works. So we start increases in the future, and that seems far away, and we think we'll have more self-control then and more money, so that's fine. Uh, we link it to raises to eliminate the loss aversion, and we use inertia to help us by keeping the increases going until somebody says stop. It sounds like it makes sense, but it took a while to convince people. The initial reaction to that was scepticism until we finally got one company to do it and we tripled saving rates in less than three years and then people said, oh, that works. And now there are millions of people enrolled in some version of this plan in the US. It's quite hopeful to think that despite our logical failings, we can at least be nudged into doing the right thing. But first, we need to recognise unnatural flaws. And this doesn't just apply to helping our future selves, but future generations as well. These biases can be enormously important, especially if we talk about issues like climate change, which is all about the future. The catastrophic scenarios are 20 or 50 years down the road, and that seems far off and abstract. 
And if we don't pay enough attention to things because they're far off and abstract, then we will have a catastrophe. That was Richard Thaler from the University of Chicago. I also roped in my not-quite-yet-a-doctor friend Phil and, of course, the biscuit-loving Kirsten and Tobias. You can read more about this topic in a comment piece in this week's Nature, written by Helga Fair-Duda and Ernst Fair. That's online at nature.com forward slash nature. If we have trouble thinking about our own future selves, then how difficult is it to think whole generations into the future? This next story is about who those future generations are and what we should be doing now to make their world better and keep them safe. To help tell the story, I've talked to an ethicist and an author who totally independently have written two very different pieces that ask many of the same questions. One is an opinion piece in this week's Nature, and the other is a science fiction story that appeared in Nature Physics. First of all, here's science writer Brian Clegg. I'm Brian Clegg, and I've written a short story called Wonderful Things. The hospital room faded as Howard's struggling brain took him back to the moment when they broke through. As Howard watched the excavation engine creep slowly into place, he could understand the fear that the advanced technology of the USA inspired. Yet even they had lost much knowledge in the collapse. If only they could discover more of the pre-collapse science, find out how the fabled machinery of the time had worked. But for now, they had the solid, reliable monsters of steam to do their bidding giving US engineers an advantage over every civilization in the known world. Minutes to go now before they broke through. The locals probably expected to find golden statues and fancy tombs down under the thick concrete walls that sealed the site. But he knew better. This was no burial place for ancient presidents. It had to be where they'd stored their secrets, their science and technology. So I'm Céline Kermish from the Université Libre de Bruxelles, so the Free University of Brussels, working in the field of philosophy of risk with both an engineering and philosophy background. Most of us, when we think about future generations, we're thinking as far as our children and grandchildren. In Céline Kermish's field, people are used to thinking a bit further into the future. People are doing risk assessments for a period which is ranging from 1,000 years up to one million years. Celine says most people aren't thinking in the right way about the generations of people who will follow them. They think of future generations as one homogeneous group of people. They don't make distinctions between these future generations, whereas obviously for some issues there will be probably very different types of impact across uh, during such a long time scale. The excavation engine's hooter gave off a dramatic blast. Howard smiled. They're close. We're nearly in. All around were the remains of reinforced concrete, littering the excavation like rust-stained confetti. Abena, the engineer, tapped the wall straight in front of the bit. We're there, chief. It's hollow behind. All it's going to take is one blow and we're through. Slowly, Howard placed the chisel against the wall and swung the hammer back, bringing it crashing into contact. A sheet of the thin concrete about two handspans in width fell away, leaving a dark void beyond. Can you see anything? Abena hissed, pushing up behind him, trying to get a glimpse of the opening. 
Howard nodded. Yes, he said. Wonderful things. When you look at the past and when we find past monuments or tombs or things like that, people are always trying to get into it. The first reflex of these future generations will probably be the same as ours, would be to dig into it, to try to find what it is. Howard had seen the shining metal containers rust-free after so many years, row after row of them, thousands upon thousands like a buried army of knowledge. Howard stirred in his bed. He knew the burns were getting worse. He couldn't last much longer. He was dying. And for what? Because when they had opened those glittering containers, all they had found was more concrete. And inside that, industrial garbage. Gloves, protective clothing, wrecked equipment. Nothing of value. Even before the illness had struck, it was as if his life's work had been wasted. In the field of uh, radioactive waste management, one important uh, cut-off point will be the moment when people will lose the knowledge and the memory of the waste. Right now, most countries store nuclear waste from power plants on the surface, but many are researching the possibility of longer-term storage in geological facilities locked away underground. Brian Clegg's story took this as a starting point. It was actually inspired by a, a news item. So I, I was just sitting in the car and they were talking about the, the French um, storage facility that was being sealed up. As we are considering a period that's going up to one million years, humility really uh, requires us to assume that we will not be, uh, that we will potentially not be able to keep that memory. And I think it's really important to make the distinction between those generations who will be able to still manage and monitor the waste and, on the, on the other hand, the generations for whom safety will be only uh, depending on the natural barriers. It's only the, the geological formation who will be assuring safety. My idea of science fiction is never that it's about predicting the future. Uh, I think that's generally a misunderstanding of science fiction. It's about testing humanity. It's about pushing and seeing what you think might happen rather than trying to predict. And science fiction is actually about people. It's about how human beings respond to the challenges of science and technology or the opportunities of science and technology. If you reflect upon the past you can see that a few thousand years before now, we, we, we really don't know much about how people were living. This is what I think um, led me to, to, to think that we must be humble here. We don't know much about how people were living a few thousand years before now. How can we even uh, pretend to speak about people in, in, in one million years. That was Celine Kermish, whose opinion article about future generations is at nature.com slash nature. And you heard from science writer Brian Clegg, 
who writes fiction and non-fiction and can be found at brianclegg.net. If you enjoyed the extracts he read from the story Wonderful Things, you can find it online at nature.com slash nfiz slash archive, where it first appeared in 2014. And Brian has a book you might like called Ten Billion Tomorrows, all about how science fiction has inspired scientists to think in different ways. Available from Amazon and other good book places. As always, more visions of the future can be found at nature.com slash futures. Still to come, technologies like CRISPR could allow us to edit the genomes of future generations. But should we? That's after the research highlights. Here's Kerry. Astronomers have identified the gases in the atmosphere of a super-Earth. Super-Earths are planets a little bigger than ours, and the first to be discovered over 10 years ago was called 55 Cancri E. It's a mere 40 light-years away. Looking at its atmosphere with the Hubble Space Telescope has revealed it's wrapped in a blanket of hydrogen and helium. No water vapour, I'm afraid, life fans. The hydrogen is in the form of hydrogen cyanide, which to most of us sounds very toxic, but to chemists is a sign that there's plenty of carbon in the planet. Find the paper in the Astrophysical Journal. Horses can read human emotions, according to a study that showed them pictures of angry and happy faces. The horses tended to look at the angry faces with their left eyes, indicating the right side of the brain was processing the image. That makes sense because the right hemisphere is thought to handle negative stimuli. There's already evidence that dogs can interpret emotional expressions on human faces. Horses too could have evolved this skill during domestication and be refining their emotional range during their lifetimes. Read more in Biology Letters. Finally this week, changing the biology of future generations. Prenatal testing can already screen out foetuses with severe abnormalities. Recently, the UK approved mitochondrial DNA replacement for conditions involving mutations in that part of the genome. Future gene editing technologies, those like CRISPR, the preserve of labs right now, can hold the potential to radically change the genomes of the future. But what level of tinkering do we, should we, find acceptable? It's all very well asking scientists and ethicists, but it'll be just as important to ask the patients currently living with disabilities. Reporter Jeff Marsh met his friend Tim Renko on the stand-up comedy circuit. Jeff took a recorder round to Tim's house. And just let me do that sound check again. What am I wearing? Check one, two, you're wearing a blue sweater and no pants. <laughs> That's how I do all my interviews. Introduce yourself. Hello, my name's Tim Renko, and I am a writer and stand-up comic with cerebral palsy. Because I am an asshole. <laughs> like, it would be like my favorite thing to do, right, is I go to the pub, and I order a glass of water. <laughs> and I wait until someone uses the disabled toilet. And then I just pull the water all over my crotch and stand in front of the door. <laughs> Living with a disability has definitely affected my comedy because it's given me a point of view to talk about. If I didn't have a disability, I'd just be another boring middle-class white guy. And who wants to hear them talk? 
<laughs> it's hard not to take that personally. <laughs> That's why I say it. <laughs> I love saying that. Do you think you'd be a comedian? I don't know if I didn't have a disability whether or not I'd be a comedian. I feel like I wouldn't be a comic. Because part of my reason for being a comic is I feel I have something to prove. And I don't think I would have that feeling if I didn't have a disability. To be clear at this point, Tim's disability, cerebral palsy, is not usually heritable, not something that gene editing would be appropriate for in the near future, but it is something that perhaps medical advances in the future could prevent. So given that Tim's life as a stand-up has been so clearly influenced by his disability, I wanted to know how he felt about new technologies, specifically gene editing, which might remove certain disabilities from future generations. Oh, I'm excited for genome editing because I'm not a scientist and in my mind I can get a tail. Um, I do not have a problem with scientists trying to cure disability because the thing, like, I am who I am because of my disability. But on the other hand, I live in constant discomfort. I'm always uncomfortable. Uh, and I just don't have a problem with some, someone trying to take that away. Of course, not all disabilities cause such high levels of pain. But where do you draw that line? Which conditions do you prevent and which not? After all, many argue human diversity is part of what helps make societies. Would we lose anything by losing that diversity? I mean, you would lose a certain point of view. Uh, but on the other hand, you're... you're um, you're getting that view because the person's in discomfort. And I don't think it's ethically right to be to say, no, you need to live in pain so we can understand the world differently. I don't think that's an appropriate call for a scientist or anyone to make. Equally, no one should make the call about how to wield new science and technology without the views of people with disabilities. Obviously, everybody with a disability has their own opinion on these matters, and these are Tim's. There's a common phrase in the disability rights community, nothing about us without us. At the very least, many in the community would like to see just as much investment in ways to help people live with disability as in gene editing technologies. Although Tim's request might prove hard to implement, I just want to be an X-Men. <laughs> Science, make me an X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in an elevator 
with this woman that was getting really nervous because I looked like I burnt. <laughs> and the elevator is the one place you cannot outrun me. <laughs> so she was getting really nervous and I knew she was gonna tell me how brave I was. Because that's what you people do. Because you think it'll make me more comfortable, which is ironic, because all it really does is make me want to bite you. <laughs> that was Tim Renko chatting to reporter Jeff Marsh. And if you want to hear more from Tim, he's got his own podcast called Fight, 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 or he's on Twitter as at Tim Renko Comedy. If you've got an opinion on the issues raised in the podcast, we'd love to hear them on Twitter, at Nature Podcast and at Nature News with the hashtag Future Generations. That's it for this week. Next time you hear from us, you'll be in what we now consider to be the future. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. <laughs> <laughs>